The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. Today we are getting back to the fundamentals and talking about how to become a better and more successful writer. And who better to talk about this than with Jeff Goins. Jeff is a writer, speaker, and podcaster, and he's the best-selling author of five books, including You Are a Writer and Real Artists Don't Starve. His award-winning blog, GoinsWriter.com, is visited by millions of people every year. And through his online courses, events, and coaching programs, he helps thousands of writers succeed every year. Jeff, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Hey, Thomas. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to talk with you because I know a lot of people are wanting to become better writers or wanting to become writers in the first place. They may feel like frauds. <laughs> They're like, oh, I'm just a, a, an imposter doing this writing thing. What would you say to somebody who's feeling that way? Well, I would say the thing that a friend told me um, eight or nine years ago when I started this journey, uh, when he asked me what my dream was, and I said it was to be a writer. And he just looked at me and said, Jeff, you don't have to want to be a writer. You are a writer. You just need to write. And I really do think this is the first most important step in this process is to own the title of writer. This is a title, unlike doctor or lawyer, uh, that you don't have to go to school for, that you can't really go to school for and get a degree that now allows you to be a writer. I mean, certainly you can go study English or literature or get your MFA, but none of these qualify you to be a writer. In fact, I know plenty of people who have all kinds of letters after their names and are still struggling to call themselves writers. And I, uh, early on in this journey, met an author named Stephen Pressfield, who wrote the book, The War of Art, and a great you know classic book on the craft of writing. And um, I said, when do you get to call yourself a writer? And he said, you are when you say you are. And so I really do think that first step is to claim this, to own it. And I don't think of this as faking it till you make it, but more believing it till you become it. So uh, you have to call yourself a writer in many cases before other people will call you a writer. Because there's no success threshold that will make you, you know, official, right? It's a mirage. There's always going to be some writer who's better than you. There's always going to be some writer who's more successful than you, right? Even after your book's been made into a movie, there's the next guy who's had two books made into a movie, right? It's like the, the, you'll never arrive if if you're measuring yourself on any other aspect than do you write? Yes, no. Yeah, I mean, if you took this with another craft that. Um, if you're doing it, you are it, right? Like you would never hear a couple of plumbers say, you know, I plunge toilets, uh, and fix sinks every day, but I'm not a real plumber yet. You know, you'd be <laughs> like, no, dude, you're totally a plumber. You know, you're doing it. And so if you are writing, you are a writer. I mean, because there is a distinction between writer and author, right? If you haven't published a book, then I wouldn't call myself an author. Uh, but if you are writing, then you are a writer. That is the threshold. If you're doing it, you are it. Now get better. Now do more of it. But I do think until we believe this is true about ourselves, we are going to find ways to subtly sabotage our own success. And so I do think it's really, really important that even if it's, uh, 
that first fearful step of going, okay, I think I might sort of be this and just owning it anyway and living into that proclamation. I, I think it's just a really important step to take uh, so that you can be more serious and do this with um, a greater level of excellence. Going back to Stephen Pressfield, he says in The War of Art, you have to turn pro in your head before you do it on the page. It really is a mental game. Yeah, that's really good. And speaking of sabotage, uh, one of the things that sabotages are writing, and you talk about this in your book, You Are a Writer, is the difference between reacting and creating. I think it's really easy for us to react and feel like we're writing. Tell us a little bit about that difference and why you see that as such an obstacle. Well, um, reacting and creating are spelled with the same words. I think. <laughs> and, and they're just rearranged a little bit, right? Um, I do think that there is some, um, there is a point at which you decide to do your work, not somebody else's work. And, and though I believe that um, we are all kind of copying and creating from a lot of the same source material. The historian Will Durant says nothing is new except arrangement. And we've all heard the steal like an artist quote and variations of it. Good art, artist copy, great artist steal. Especially that quote. They steal that quote all the time. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Who said that? Did T.S. Eliot say that? Did Austin Kleon say that? Who said that? It was Franklin. Uh, it was always Franklin. <laughs> did Picasso say that? Um, and so uh, I, I do think that many of us are spending too much time reacting to what other people expect, what we think publishers want, what readers want, and perhaps mostly to what we see other writers doing. And anytime you're caught up in a state of reactive writing, uh, re just reaction, kind of um, just reactive uh, activity, period, uh, you're not creating. You're not making something new. You're not making something original. And so I do think our art, our genius, the craft that we all have is to, yeah, take this thing that you read and this, th and, and this other source or inspiration. Again, we're using a lot of the same source material, but then sitting down and going, what can I do with this? How can I rearrange this in my own unique way? And at a very practical level, for me, that means like I, I spent all morning this morning reacting. Uh, responding to texts and emails from colleagues and clients and people that I work with. And I didn't make anything. Like I didn't make something new. Reaction is not making new things. And I felt really drained. I did this for a couple of hours, got some coffee, had every intention in the world to sit down and write this morning and got sidetracked with a couple of uh, urgent things that required my uh, reactivity. And then I sort of set that stuff aside because I felt drained and I was like, I need to write. I need to just work on something. And as soon as I finished, I finished up a little piece that I wrote, just part of my daily practice came here and, and now I'm doing this. But as soon as I did that, I just felt full. I felt like I was okay now. I felt right. And uh, that's just, I think, an important part of the creative process. And we live in this age of constant reactivity. I mean, social media uh, and on all kinds of technology, but especially social media, is a great distraction that pulls you away from your creative core. And anytime you're in that space of reactive work, you are not creating. You're doing something else. Yeah, at some point, people are reacting to other people's reactions who are reacting to other reactions. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Like, welcome, welcome to Facebook. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I, I do have a confession. There is a YouTube show. It's a guilty pleasure of mine called 
the hot ones. And it's an interview show where uh, this guy interviews celebrities while they're eating hot wings. And the wings get progressively hotter until they're, they're physically in pain. Sometimes they're like <laughs> weeping. They're in so much pain. And they're like, why does anyone ever do this show? It's the closest thing to like confession under torture that we have in like <laughs> right, present yeah. day. Uh, and it's the one, because I don't normally get into celebrity stuff, but I find this show to be interesting. And he often talks with celebrities about their craft and you know how they got started but often he'll ask them about like what do you think about the box office numbers what do you think about your rotten tomato score in your recent movie and i'm stunned at how few of the celebrities have any answers to that because they're like i don't know i don't follow that (laughs) They're, they're so focused on creating what they create right becoming a better actor making the next movie that they're not looking at the box office numbers they're not looking at the reviews that are coming in and that's what is allowing them to keep going and creating new content and so often like once we create that one thing and suddenly people are reacting to us for the first time we're like oh my gosh and then it's like now i have an excuse to react to the reactions that people reacted to me because ultimately i created the first thing and then you're back into that you know whirlpool uh, where you're no longer creating anymore yeah. Well, it reminds me of uh, The Greatest Showman, you know, speaking of movies that came out a couple of years ago now. And the movie came out. It came out the same week. I guess I think it was um, two Decembers ago. Yeah, it was two Decembers ago. Um, and it came out the same week as the latest Star Wars movie, Last Jedi. And it did just okay. And and then the next week it did just okay. And it just kind of kept just doing okay. And it got a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is not good. You know, the critics didn't love it. Um, And that movie stayed in theaters for like a year. (laughs) And it just kept going and people kept coming. And every week it started selling just a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And it took like 10 years to make and actually wrote the the songs before they filmed the movie, right? Like they, they decided... They basically wrote all these songs and every, the team that wrote, cause it's musical, you know, the team that wrote the songs, um, uh, wrote it kind of on, on spec where they didn't get a contract to, to do the entire, um, uh, soundtrack score, whatever you would call it. Um, they just got it one song at a time. They go, okay, write us a song. We'll pay you this money to write the song. They wrote a song and they're like, okay, do another song. And so every song in that, on that soundtrack was earned. You know what I'm saying? Like they didn't mm-hmm. get any like, ah, oh, this is a filler. Every song was earned. And then they built a movie around these songs. And uh, I mean, I love that movie. I think it's a great movie. And it's a great example of like having a vision, spending 10 years creating something and not getting distracted by the short-term positive or negative reactions of the critics, of the fans, of the people who don't get it. I mean, if you spend 10 years creating something and you're devastated after the first week, which could have happened, this happens with movies, it happens with books all the time. You put all this work into something and it's not an immediate bestseller or blockbuster and you're like, I'm disappointed. But you spent two years or 10 years, right, making this. Why not spend a little bit more time with your blinders on continuing to do the work to help this succeed. And so we just have to understand, because we live in a very reactive time, we have to understand that there's always a cost to reaction and the cost is you're not creating. Bottom line, period. That's it. Yeah, the easiest thing you can do right now, practical tip, take your Outlook notifications and mute them. (laughs) So that while you're writing, it's not dinging, constantly inviting you to move back into reaction mode. I don't understand why anyone... 
I feel strong about this and I'm not a Luddite. I don't understand why anyone on any device would ever have any notification enabled, period. There's, there's no reason to do it other than maybe your spouse texting or calling you, uh, or your, you know, a, a loved one or a partner or whatever, um, be, because of an emergency. There's no reason why you should get a ding on your phone when you get an email at all. I, I completely agree. I was reading, um, digital minimalism. And after I started reading that book, I went in and turned off half of the notifications inside of Facebook. I had already muted all of the notifications on Facebook on my phone. So there's never a little red icon because that red icon is scientifically designed to trigger chemicals in your brain that create an addictive loop <laughs> where you're like, Ooh, you know, I got to get rid of the red icon. I got to, And it's always new. There's always something there. Twitter, even if no one has messaged you, it'll put a red icon on there and <laughs> give you a number of like, so, so, and so stranger has tweeted. You got to read it. It's breaking news. And you know, it, that urgency makes it feel important. And yet that urgency is not important at all. Right. And it's just silly. Like I'm not, again, I'm not like anti-technology. Um, like I'm on social media, I use email every day, but if I want to read an email, I go to my email inbox, I open up, I see what kind of mail I have. Like, like you would, like you don't go to your mailbox 20 times a day. You go once, maybe twice if you're really expecting something, usually at the same time because the physical mailman who brings the physical mail comes around the same time every day. And so why can't you do that with your inbox? Uh, and why can't you do that with Facebook and Twitter? Check it once or twice a day um, and and, that, and that's it. Go on, go on your way. And obviously, we're not consciously doing this. You're not consciously going, I'm looking at this, you know a hundred times a day. But if you, I mean, with like an iPhone, it tracks that stuff. You can actually look at the statistics about how many times you pick up your phone every day. And I, and I started tracking and I was like, Oh, like it'll be like, you know, 10, 15, 20 times. No, 120 times I pulled my phone out of my pocket and looked at it. I was like, what in the world am I doing with my life? You know? And so it is an unconscious, addictive, compulsive kind of behavior that we're not aware of. And, uh, if you can just kind of create some space in your life, you're you're going to fill that with creativity. You, you're going to fill any space in your life with creation or reaction, period. That's really good. So other than setting aside social media and kind of setting aside distractions, what are some other ways that we can make writing a habit so that we're improving every day? I I follow a system. I'm not a real big systems or formulas guy. Most creativity for me um, as a principle fits into the cracks of my life certainly was true when I wasn't a full-time writer and I was working as a marketing director for a nonprofit and my wife was pregnant with our first child and I was blogging and working on my first book you know it was like 30 minutes here 15 minutes there maybe an hour after my wife went to bed that night um, but I had a job I had responsibilities you know like I had stuff to do uh, and so I kind of cut out a lot of hobbies and then took whatever time I could get and maximized it. So just like as a philosophical principle, as a philosophy of creativity, use whatever time that you have and never despise small amounts of time. I think that's just a that's just how I do my work. When somebody goes, 
you know, I didn't, I didn't write today because I didn't have a block of two hours to do nothing, you know, so I could focus on that. I'm like, gosh, what a life that would be if you just had, you know, two, three hours in the morning or at night to just do whatever you wanted. That's not how my life works with two small kids, a job, uh, you know, and uh, a, a wife that wants to see me and, and just things to do, right? People that expect things from me, bills that need to be paid. So if I have 10 minutes where I don't have anything to do, I'm, I'm writing, I'm doing something with it. And so that was a really important practice early on and continues to be a practice for me is just using whatever time I have and um, filling it with something. Now, the system that I use, again, I'm not real big on systems because I think creativity for me is a pretty messy process. And I think it is for a lot of people, but then you have sort of that survivorship bias, right? You, uh, uh, you jump out of the plane and, and you're one of the few people that have a parachute and you're like, see, this is, this is how you don't die when you jump out of a plane, but you're not, you're <laughs> listening to the one guy who made it, not the 99 dead guys. And so there's a lot of that in our conversations about success, even in the writing and publishing world. It's like, this is what you have to do to get a best-selling book. You've got to get rejected a hundred times like JK Rowling did. Well, maybe, but that was also like decades ago. <laughs> she was writing those <laughs> books in the nineties. And it just may be true that publishing works a little bit differently today. And it might be better to look at the people that are succeeding now, you know, th that have done something that you want to do in the last six months than somebody that did this 25, 30 years ago. Uh, so, the productivity system that I use is something that I just realized I was kind of naturally doing. And I was like, oh, hey, I'm doing that. We'll call this this, right? And, and so I call it the three bucket system. Uh, and it is like one of a few formulaic systems-based things that I have that I think is is pretty helpful and, and seems to be um, almost universally helpful to a lot of other people who are struggling with getting their writing done. And, and so for me, it's just breaking up the activity of writing into three different tasks. And I do think that for most people, this is why we get quote unquote writer's block and, and why we often feel stuck uh, and struggle to get our creative work done is writing is not one thing. It's three things. It's coming up with an idea it's drafting that idea into an actual draft, something that you can work on, uh, rough draft, working draft. Uh, and then finally, it's editing that draft into something that is publishable, uh, whatever that means for you, a blog, uh, a book, uh, a post on Instagram, an article, whatever that might mean, an email. And so for me, depending on the project, um, this can look a little bit differently, but Every piece of writing goes through these three steps, uh, coming up with ideas, turning that idea into a draft, and then taking the draft and editing it. And the way that I do that is I break up my day into these three different chunks, and I never try to take an idea to published piece in one sitting, which is what I think a lot of people do. And so uh, the, the process is I'm always coming up with ideas, and anytime I have an idea, I never assume I'm going to remember it. And so I just take out my phone and I put a little note in an app on my phone where I save all these ideas. And then every morning and every morning is not perfect where I sit down, you know, as soon as I get up and start writing, as I mentioned, this morning was, I, I got sidetracked, and, but I still had a commitment to myself to get some writing done. And so I sat down and took an idea out of the idea bucket. So I don't have to think about it. It's just saved on my phone. I go, what am I going to write about? Oh, I wrote this note yesterday. Um, and it could be from five days ago or whatever, but I'm just constantly keeping track of ideas. I take one idea and I just riff on it for a little bit, 500 words on this idea. And then I save it and I set it aside. And then whatever writing time I have left, I usually set aside at least an hour in the morning, sometimes more, sometimes less. But I try to do these two activities often back to back. 
Uh, and so I'll, I'll take the idea and I'll turn it into a draft. So now that's in what I would call the drafts bucket with a bunch of other documents that are sort of half finished, 25 to 75% done that need to be edited and completed. And I set aside the draft and then I take out a previous draft from a previous day and I edit that. And I either edit it and get it ready to publish or I edit and I go, I've got to come back and keep editing this later. Uh, And so every day I'm doing that. I'm coming up with ideas, saving those, and that's throughout the day. Uh, And then I'm taking one of the ideas, drafting it, then I'm setting that aside, coming back to it later. And then I'm taking out a previous draft and I'm editing it. And so the goal now that I have these three buckets, ideas, drafts, and edits, the goal is not to come up with my magnum opus today. It's to just keep all of the buckets full. There's so many things that I like about that. And I actually stumbled into a similar system uh, with podcast episodes because we started novel marketing back in 2013. So it's the longest running book marketing podcast uh, around at the moment. And we have the same thing. We have a list of ideas and listener questions, right? We just dump them all into a big document. And then when it comes time to create an episode, we go to that document and we're like, which of these ideas seems the most interesting to us right now? And then we record it. And then for the podcast, the editing is done by somebody else. We don't we don't do that anymore. <laughs> but I used to. I used to I used to edit my own podcasts. Uh, but what I really like about your system is that it allows you to look at your writing with fresh eyes. That you you've slept you've slept on it, and because you, you're your best writer the next day, right? Like you look at your writing that you thought was brilliant, and then you sleep on it, and you look at it again, <laughs> like yesterday me was an idiot. <laughs> like what was I thinking? I could totally make this better. And if you do it for start to finish all at once, you're missing out on that kind of rested mind looking back at your writing. And with your system, you you rest rest twice, right? You, you create the idea and then you rest on it, then you create the rough draft and then you rest on it and then you create the final version, which I really like. Yeah. And uh, as you said, it's just a stumble. It's a system that you stumble into. And I realized um, that this worked really well for me. And, and this is similar to what Hemingway would do uh, when he would write his novels and short stories is he would get up first thing in the morning and he'd write for a few hours. Uh, then he'd stop. And his philosophy was, I want it. Uh, I want to leave something left. And so he would stop right in the middle of the story so that when he came back to it the next day, he had been thinking about how he was going to finish that story or write that next scene or whatever it might be. And so he'd go back and reread what he read the day before, wrote the day before and make it better. And then he'd continue the story from there and I have found that to be uh, a really helpful process, whether it's, you know, narrative writing, nonfiction writing, advice, how to, et cetera, just um, stopping somewhere in the middle and having an idea where you're going to go next and thinking about it, sleeping on it. You might take notes, but it's just like there's something happening at a subconscious level where you're still working out the story or still working out the idea so that when you come back to it, um, it, it, it is better than it would be if you would have just kept going. That's really good. And if you're curious to learn more about the three bucket system, uh, while Jeff was talking, I did some Googling and we will have a link <laughs> in the show notes to a blog post, a uh, blog post by Mr. Jeff Goins that breaks down the three bucket system. I think you even have some videos on there. Uh, so I, what, what I love about this is that it's so, uh, you know, so many people stumbling onto this on their own means that it's very core to like the way humans think, or at least the way a lot of humans think. And, you know, if this system doesn't work for you, don't feel like this is the only way to do it. But it is a way that works for a lot of people. And it's a, a good thing to experiment with. You really owe it to yourself to experiment with a system like this, especially if you have no system. <laughs> like, because uh, 
any system is better than no system, right? If you're having to figure out what to work on every time, that mental energy could be focused on actually creating rather than figuring out what to create. And in fact, a blank page is really intimidating. Yeah. And that was, I, I, I highly recommend finding a system that works for you. This works for me. Uh, it's not a one size fits all. It does seem to help a lot of people. Um, but you've got to find something that works for you, resonates with you, aligns with your personality and all your quirks. Like I'm a messy writer and I spent years trying to not be what I am. I tried to clean that up and sort of shaming myself into doing things differently and adopting systems and techniques that just didn't work for me because I just wasn't that organized. <laughs> and uh, I just, well, I was like, this is what works for me and I'm going to trust it. And I agree, the blank page is very intimidating. And so all I was trying to do with the system was make it easier on me, right? And I often felt stuck and overwhelmed and uh, intimidated by, I've got to come up with some amazing piece of writing that's 2,500 words in the next hour or I'm sunk, you know? And I was just setting myself up for failure and stress, fear, right? And and anytime you're in that state of mind, you're not going to do as good of creative work. You're not going to be as focused. You're not in that flow state and it's going to be taxing on, on you physically and emotionally. And that will tax your creativity as well. And so this is just a way for me to, I like coming up with ideas. I like writing and I like making pieces of my writing better, but I don't have to do that all at once in the same place with the same piece in one sitting. And I found that it made my better writing and it made the process of writing more fun and allowed me to use whatever time I have because I'm grabbing these 10, 15, 20 minute chunks sometimes. So when I sat down, I wasn't like, what am I going to write about? I was like, oh, I'm just going to take an idea out of the idea bucket. And, and there's no pressure to finish it today. I'm just going to play with it, write you know, 500 words on it and then set it aside and then maybe look at something that is a little bit closer to getting done. Yeah, the, and it allows you to create consistently because you've got this drumbeat of content expectations, right? The blog needs to be fed and having a system where you can, without stressing yourself out, create consistent content uh, is really helpful. Yeah. Uh, speaking of creating consistent content, another thing you talk about in your uh, books is practicing in public. Are you sure about that? Like, you really <laughs> want us to practice in public? <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, if you think about um, any craft, music, art, uh, writing, any creative um, craft, the best way to get good faster than you otherwise would is to practice in front of somebody. Uh, and if you think about the apprenticeship system, which was the way that creative workers became masters, it was uh, a 10-year process in the Middle Ages and through the Renaissance where you would come under the tutelage of a master artisan or artist or craftsperson. And you would often live with this person uh, and do whatever they asked you to do. Uh, you know, fetch me that paint, go get some food, you know, do whatever. But over the years, you got to see how this worked and you got to see what it was like for somebody to truly practice mastery of a craft. And then you got to start practicing it and you uh, had fellow apprentices, other students watching you, uh, and you had your teacher watching you, giving you feedback while you were doing it. And this really is the best way to learn anything and to grow in any area, right? There's a difference between um, downloading a PDF of some uh, weightlifting exercises, some strength training exercises that I want to do, going to the gym and figuring it out on, myself, uh, on my own. I'll get 
you know, pretty strong doing that, but I don't completely understand the technique because I'm not an expert. There's a difference between that and hiring a personal trainer and doing the same exercises and having them watch you and having them give you feedback on it. And so practicing in public is part one, like part of it is it's you getting better in front of people that you don't want to be embarrassed in front of, right? So you're just going to try harder. You're going to work more diligently and you're going to get feedback while you do it. And the other part of it is there is this byproduct of doing your work in public, which is that eventually people start paying attention. And so there's this ancillary marketing benefit. And so as it pertains to writing, uh, this means writing in public. Seth Godin wrote a blog post once uh, where he says, nobody ever gets talker's block, right? (laughs) You should write the way that you talk. And in fact, writer's block is a modern invention. It's not something that Shakespeare struggled with. It wasn't a term right? Uh, it's, you can look at the trend on Google and it's, a, it, it starts um, really coming into popularity in the early 1950s when writers worked at ad agencies and uh, started drinking in the middle of the day because they were living one life when they really wanted to be living another <laughs> life. So lots of layers to that. Um, <laughs> but it's true. Alcohol, not necessarily as helpful to writing as you might think. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, they, they wanted to be you know, they wanted to be writing novels and instead they were writing, you know, deodorant ads. And so that is going to drive a person to drink maybe. And so, um, when it comes to practicing in public for me, that means writing on a blog. Uh, and, and, and for me, when I started my blog, goinswriter.com, I was tired of not being noticed. And I was tired of saying this is something I wanted to do and not doing it every day. And so I just decided, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, so to speak. I'm going to write a new blog post on my blog every single day for the next two years just to see if I'm actually serious about this. And and I got better in that, really, in the first year of writing than I had sort of practicing willy-nilly when I felt like it in the previous 10 years of saying, I'd like to be a writer someday. I said, no, I am a writer. What do writers do? They write every day, I think. So that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to publish it on the blog post so I can't, uh, on my blog as a blog post, so I can't hide. And what happened was people started coming along and paying attention. And that's what happens when you practice in public. So this is going to date me a little bit. But when I was a freshman in college, it was the first year that our university had this like online learning system. They're like, we're going to start using the internet to help with education. And I was in my freshman rhetoric class. And halfway through the semester, the professor is like, I want you all to submit your next assignment through this system. And all, and all the other students are going to be able to read it. And it was like the first time we were writing in public, right? So other than that, we were just handing a piece of paper to the professor. And he'd never done this before, right? This is new technology, um, if you can imagine. And I remember him coming back uh, after we'd all turned in our assignment. And he was stunned. Like, he didn't even grade the class, the, the assignments. And we're like, what happened? He's like, the quality improvement was so much higher on this assignment than everything else you've done. I don't even know how to grade this. So he's basically like, you all got A's. And the only thing that changed was that now suddenly our own fellow students were able to read our writing. And it just, just that little context and and perhaps also having an audience to write to, I think was helpful as well. Um, But that just shifted and made us 
immediately better. <laughs> and and um and so I, I when I saw this in your book about practicing in public, I was like, yes, there's something really powerful in that. Something um, that forces you to be honest w- with your effort. Right. Cause it's easy if you're doing it just for yourself to cut yourself some slack. Right. It's like, just like that gym example. Right. If you're practicing in the gym all by yourself, no one's watching. It's like, ah, that was 15 reps. That was close enough. We'll round it up. Right. Uh, but you're less likely to do that if you are doing it in public. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I played music quote unquote professionally for a while for a year and same thing happened. I had been playing guitar for six, seven years, playing with various bands, doing it here and there as a hobby. And then after college, I joined a band and played five to 10 shows a week for nine months straight and got better than I ever thought I could be. And I never practiced. I only performed right? Um, I was the leader of our band. So I drove the van and lined up the gigs and was sort of the road manager for us. I did all these things. And then, you know, for an hour every night, I'd step on stage and play electric guitar. And even just that, the performance, which is practicing in public is performance. Performance is practicing in public. It's you doing your thing in front of people. And it's always going to make you a little bit better than when you do it in private. And just doing that over and over again, um, made me better than I ever thought I could be. I mean, I literally remember thinking I'll never be able to play like that kind of guitarist. And by the end of the year, I was, I was, um, better than I had ever been or or thought I could be in less than a year. And any professional musician will tell you that you can, you can, you can record all the songs in the studio, but they don't really become real until you take them to the road and see how people interact with them. And that's when, you really start to see a third dimension to your art. And it turns out that a lot of great artists throughout history have done this in one form or another. And so it doesn't mean you have to stand on a street corner, but you do have to do your work in front of someone who will be impressed or disappointed by what they see, like your teacher. And and there's just something about that, that that forces you to rise to a level you aren't even sure that you're capable of. Yeah. And you may be wondering, well, like, well, but I write fiction. How do I practice fiction in public? And my answer to that would be short stories. <laughs> short stories are a lot more shareable than giving somebody your novel, right? It's like, hey, please read these 100,000 words, right? That's really hard. It's harder to do in public. But giving somebody a short story or letting people download it from your website is a lot easier and it helps you work your way up uh, the skill tree faster uh, than jumping straight into writing a novel all at once. And and this is something nonfiction people have been doing for decades and novelists used to do. Like novelists used to write tons of short stories and the practice went out of, uh, or the the technique went out of practice. And I think that was really to the loss. And I will say as a marketer, having short stories, a whole collection of them on your hard drive is very useful for all kinds of fun marketing techniques. So if you're a novelist, don't feel like you're off the hook on the practicing in public. You need to get your stories out in front of people uh, one way uh, or the other. Yeah. I have a friend who's writing a novel right now. It's a, it's a, um, uh, what is, what is that genre? Like a hundred years of solitude, um, like, uh, fantastical kind of reality, um, story. Uh, but she's sharing bits and pieces of it on Instagram and, and she'll take like a picture and then she'll have like a couple pieces of dialogue and she's just sharing bits and pieces of her novel, um, while she's writing it to one, build an audience around it and two, 
for her to just kind of test these ideas and share pieces of it and get feedback uh, on it. And, and as you mentioned, plenty of novelists, uh, especially, you know, in, in, in the old days, would not just write short stories, but even serialize their fiction. You know, Hemingway did this with a number of novels. Um, uh, Charles Dickens did this. Many, many authors would find ways to share bits and pieces of their stories with the world. And while people engaged with them, interacted with them, gave feedback to them, uh, it it, it changed the story. It helped them uh, change what they were doing. I have another friend who writes fiction, who uh, writes uh, children's stories. Um, he, write, he, he actually kind of started this Narnia-esque book series that he just sold to a publisher with no platform. And uh, how he did it was he wrote a story for his kids, and then he started bringing it into his son's, I think, third grade classroom and started reading a chapter during story time uh, once a week to his kids' class. And at the end of the class, he would take questions and they would go, well, what about this? And what happens here? And do they finally meet so-and-so? And he just took notes. He was like, oh, these are great ideas. And oh, I didn't answer that question. And they're confused about this. It was how he he wrote a six-book series doing this. So get creative with who your audience is and what your quote-unquote public looks like. It could be some friends, you know, it could be a fam, a few family members, but it needs to be somebody who's going to give you some objective view on the work that you're doing and let you know what's resonating and, and what's not. And, and most importantly, it's just going to force you to do better work. Yeah. Scott Sigler did this with a podcast you know, he was rejected by all the major publishers. So he started um, putting out his stories on a podcast one chapter at a time. And his writer, his reader, listeners would write in with ideas. And if they were really active, he'd add them as a corpse, right? Because his books are super violent. So they could be one of the people who died, right? So the names of the random people who died are actually names of his listeners. And it was interactive and people, not that people voted necessarily, but they gave their feedback on where, what they thought the protagonist should do next or where things should go. And, you know, he ended up, you know, being on the New York Times bestseller list and getting a five deal, five book deal with a major publisher uh, who had previously rejected him because he practiced in public and demonstrated that he had an audience and got better, right? Because the version that got published wasn't the version that was podcasted. The version was edited and improved and had listeners' names, more listeners' names added in. Uh, But Jeff, we're almost out of time, but I I do want to ask, because we're talking a lot about getting feedback, and a lot of authors are afraid to get that feedback. You know, why is that and how can we make that um, process of getting feedback easier and, and more enjoyable? I don't know. I have no idea how to make feedback more enjoyable. <laughs> you have to decide what you want, right? So if you want to be a professional writer, doesn't mean you make $100,000 a year doing that necessarily. Although it could, you know, I don't think that uh, artists or authors have to starve for their work. Um, I think there are plenty of uh, people who are making a living at this who are thriving. I wrote an entire book on that called Real Artists Don't Starve, and that applies to writers as well. Um, But if you want to be a professional, meaning you want to do important and interesting work that um, people will take seriously, this is a part of the job right? Like you don't get to be a professional writer and not have lots and lots of positive and negative feedback on your work. And so the question is, are you ready for that? Like, cause everybody's ready for the, you know, New York times list and the hundred thousand dollar book contracts and, you know, um, all the nice things and the book tours and all the things that we fantasize about, 
But all that comes with this. It comes with criticism. It comes with people not getting it. It comes with people hating it and sometimes thinking that they hate you, which is not really you. It's the idea of you. But nonetheless, they'll say, I hate you. Um, (laughs) And so it all comes down to practice. And if that's what you want, that's a part of the job. And so why not start practicing that now? And if you're not ready, it's okay. Just say, I'm not ready. But the end of that sentence is, I'm not ready to be a professional because I'm not acting like a professional. So you have to be honest with yourself about what you really want and understand that your actions are speaking much more loudly than your words. And so if you aren't sharing your work with anyone, as many amateur writers uh, do, they, they keep their novel in their sock drawer, as it were, or you know their short stories on their uh, desktop or their, their laptop full of, I've got a book on my laptop. And it's like you know two and a half chapters, it turns out, um, which is true for many writers. They think they've got a whole thing and they've been writing it in fits and starts and not sharing it with anyone. And you don't, you, know, you have a bunch of hodgepodge ideas. And that's fine, but all of this becomes real when you start acting like a professional. And an essential part of the job is you share your art with someone. That's just how it works. Yeah, I mean, going back to your plumber example, right? If all you're doing is fixing your own pipes over and over again, you're not a professional plumber, right? You have to actually go to somebody else's house <laughs> and fix their toilet uh, and and get paid, right? Because uh, the words professional and amateur in the Latin, amateur has a root in the word love and professional has a root in the word money. It's like, what makes you professional? It's like, once you've been paid the first time for something, you're now a professional. <laughs> and if you want to get paid more, you need to have that mindset. And um, we'll have links to uh, Real Artists Don't Starve, which, uh, Jeff, I love your approach of kind of being an entrepreneur, but also being an artist and kind of blending those because I think a lot of people see those as, as being at odds, where it's like, well, true artists have to starve. And that historically does not prove out. And in real life does not prove out <laughs> if you're good at what you're doing. And if you respect the work that you do, Right. Like, and I think that's important. Right? You have to respect the work you do enough to be willing to charge for it. And that's a kind of a psychological um, journey and also a, a quality journey. Right. You have to learn how to write the kind of work that you, you'd be willing to charge for. But uh, I love all of that. Any final uh, tips for our listeners? Yeah. I mean, going back to more concrete answer to that last question, uh, I think if you are like I was and still can be, uh, I find this never really goes away. There's always, I'm always trying to dig down deeper into my art, which is like, this is the real thing. This is the real me. This is the deep, deep stuff that I've always wanted to share, right? Because there's always another depth to it. And maybe that's, you know, going from nonfiction to fiction for you, or maybe it's writing poetry, uh, or maybe it's writing anything and sharing it with somebody. The first step is always to share it with someone. Right. And so a a really practical next step is if you have something that you have never shared with anyone that you're afraid for people to see, um, that, that, that gap between amateur and professional is not as big as you think. It really just begins with this step from sharing it with someone. And, uh, one man who did this was named J.R.R. Tolkien, who had never shared his writing with anyone, met uh, a guy named Jack C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and they were both professors at Oxford at the time. They both kind of were writing on the side, not telling anybody about it. And they both shared a couple of poems with each other. And that poem that Tolkien shared with his friend uh, became the basis for, uh, for what became Lord of the Rings. And they started a literary group called the Inklings and all this stuff happened 
uh, afterwards as a result of two men who were afraid to share their writing with one another and leaned into that fear. And I, I would say it arguably changed the world of literature forever. So don't take this lightly. It really just begins with you starting by sharing your work with one person and then another and another and so on. That is amazing. Uh, Jeff, where can people find out more about you? You can find me at my blog, where I also have a podcast on uh, writing and creative work uh, at goinswriter.com, G-O-I-N-S writer.com, or you can search the podcast app uh, for The Portfolio Life, um, The Portfolio Life, which is just about uh, creative work and how um, artists and writers uh, make a living today. All right. Our sponsor this week is the Christian Writers Institute, and the course of the week is How to Craft Amazing Blogs. Your blog is the key for building a platform, establishing expertise, and gaining a loyal following. And this special video course, Thomas Humstead Jr., helps you craft uh, blog posts that people want to read and share, whether you're writing articles for someone else's site or crafting posts for your own blog. This course will help take you to the next level. And as always, you can save 10% with the coupon code PODCAST or click the link in the show notes. Uh, Jeff Goins, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you, Thomas. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.